are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are talking about prevalence of alcohol use disorders, the state of drinking in the U.S. Okay, Paula, you take it away. Okay, it's just us today. We are overwhelmed in our clinic with patients with alcohol-related illness and use disorders. So we decided, and also there's a lot of talk in the press about increased alcohol use and then in the medical literature scientific data is proving that alcohol use is up from the pandemic. And there are lots of interesting nuances to this. So we wanted to discuss this on our podcast. Let's talk about the prevalence of drinking in the US, Darlene. This is the latest data I think we have is from 2019, right? Yes. All right. So that data, which is from the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, says that 85.6% of of adults in the US have drank alcohol at some point in their lifetime, but 14.5 million people have criteria or meet criteria for an alcohol use disorder. So that's 5.3% of the adult population has an alcohol use disorder. That is one in 20 people, a little bit more than that, right? That's a lot of people. That's a lot. I know, right? So anytime you're in a group of more than 20 people, you can count at least one to two with alcohol use disorder. Well, and our family physicians out there maybe are seeing 20, 25 patients a day. At least one to two of your patients have an alcohol use disorder that you saw today. Oh, I love that. That is so true. And they may be disguised as hypertension or anxiety or insomnia or gastritis, not overt alcohol-related problems. This is where all of my nurse practitioners and PAs that work with me, this is kind of where they hate me (laughs) because when they get a patient and I'm reviewing their charts and they have elevated liver enzymes or they have uncontrolled hypertension, they always get messages back from me and I I'm always asking, did you ask about alcohol in this patient? And they keep, they go, oh, it's not their alcohol. I said, did you ask? And it, it comes back, alcohol. <laughs> it's always the alcohol. Yeah, it's so true. I, I, I mean, it's amazing how casual people are surrounding their alcohol use. And I don't know if it's casuality, if that's a word, or if it's shame and stigma. It's probably a combination. But a lot of times, wellness visits or for a visit for something else, just like you're talking about, Darlene, I'll just say, how many alcoholic beverages do you drink a day or a week or a month? And people just casually say, oh, well, you know, drink about a six pack a night or, you know, three to four drinks a night. And we would never have brought that up, I think, unless we asked them specifically. So anyway, we're kind of getting off on a tangent, but this is true. And this just shows how many people this affects, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what about the percentage of men versus women with alcohol use disorder? Now, and we think, and we're going to talk about this later in the podcast, that this is changing, but out of the five percent of people in the U.S. as of 2019 who have alcohol use disorder, 6.8% of them are men and 3.9% of them are women. But we're going to talk about that. And then why don't you talk about binge drinking and heavy drinking? 
what's what's going on there and what are the definitions of those? This comes from NIAAA, the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. They define binge drinking as drinking enough alcohol to either raise your blood alcohol level to a 0.08%. And that typically means for women, it's about four drinks or men, it's about five drinks in two hours. So this is rapid increase in your blood alcohol level. Then there's this new term. And this is something that I'm seeing a lot of. And I think Polly, you said you are too. This is an emerging trend. So I think this is something that we really need to be aware of called high intensity drinking. NIAAA describes it as it's consuming alcohol at levels that are two or more times the gender specific binge drinking thresholds. When I just define that that's for a, a woman that would typically be eight to 12 drinks in a two hour period men that would be five to 15 drinks in a two hour period. This Ooh, is that's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> I mean, that's happening. And so they said people who drink alcohol twice their gender specific binge drinking thresholds were 70 times more likely to have an alcohol related emergency visit. And those who consumed at three times their gender specific binge thresholds were 93 times more likely to have an alcohol related ED visit. So wow. not only is this life threatening, but just the costing the system more. And then you just think of the other as far as blackouts and repercussions and crimes that happen with consuming alcohol in those levels. So now that we know some of those definitions, the prevalence. So again, this data comes from 2019, 25.8% of people 18 and older met the criteria for a binge drinking or heavy alcohol use disorder. Again, that's a lot. Men tend to be higher on binge drinking. So they're about 29.7% and women 22.2% respectively. This is in the past four months in those groups. Those numbers are crazy, Paula. (laughs) And I saw so much of this with the pandemic. Right. And let's talk a little bit about college binge drinking. Like this could be a whole other podcast in itself, but college drinking is kind of a ritual it's a rite of passage. There's a lot of factors that play into college binge drinking. But according to the NASDA study, 53% of full-time college students ages 18 to 22 drank alcohol in the past month and 33% engaged in binge drinking during that same time frame. So about a third of college drinkers are binge drinking and they define binge drinking as five drinks or more for males or four drinks or more for females in, in two hours. So that's just shows you the kind of numbers of binge drinking in college, which I think we're all pretty familiar with and we expect. What's interesting about the statistics you were discussing, Darlene, and this data actually comes from the CDC, is from the definition of binge drinking, which you mentioned, half of the total binge drinks consumed in the US are actually by those people age 35 and over. So it's not just college students, it's not just medical students. I know that when I give the talk to the medical students on alcohol use and we discuss the definition on of binge drinking, everyone's just cracking up and laughing because everyone, almost everyone meets criteria for binge drinking at some point, right? But we still have a big binge drinking problem in this country in people who are over age 35. And I think that's remarkable too, again, in the pandemic. All right. So we've talked a little bit about how many people 
in their lifetime drink. We talked a little bit about who has an alcohol use disorder, at least one in 20 people. And then we've talked about binge drinking, who's doing that, how many people. And we talked about this new term called high intensity drinking and the harms that are associated with that. What about the costs related to alcohol misuse in the US? And we were trying to find some updated numbers and we couldn't really find any, but the cost of alcohol misuse, according to 2010 survey, was $249 billion a year. And three three quarters of this cost, three quarters of that cost is due to binge drinking. Which makes sense when you just think about the emergency room visits alone. Right. Emergency room visits, traffic accidents, violence, unintended pregnancies, other medical harms, missed school days, missed work days, other health, all the health consequences that come from binge drinking, right? And I just have to say one other thing about binge drinking. When I was working doing medical management of withdrawal full-time inpatient, I, it was not a phenomenon that was uncommon to see folks who were binge drinkers have more withdrawal or worse withdrawal syndrome than people who were daily drinkers. And I, and I, I mean, I'm talking about really persistent binge drinkers, but they would have this on again, off again issue where they'd binge really hard and then not drink at all and binge really hard and not drink at all. And over time, they just cause that kindling effect kind of in acceleration, much like people who drink constantly do and then stop drinking. But they're doing it every, you know, three times a month or more often than that. And they kindle more and more and their CNS becomes more and more activated. And I always have some of these kids that were in their, you know, 20, early 20s who you think would be more resilient to severe alcohol withdrawal syndrome. And they are surprised because they've only, quotation marks, been binge drinking, have really severe and significant withdrawal. And I'm sure you've seen the same thing. Oh, yes. And I think it's so interesting because they can sometimes go quite a bit of time and the diagnosis is missed because it's not daily and they can go periods of sobriety that they're okay. Oh, that's such a good point. I think that's a problem for lots of people, like not just college age people where they don't really know how to define their drinking. They know it's probably problematic, but they don't meet what they think in their head is someone with an alcohol problem or an alcoholic to use the, the old term. And I just think that that's, that becomes really difficult for people. They're like, well, I don't really have, I don't know if I have a problem, but they have negative consequences to drinking. And that's the very definition of problem drinking, right? Yes. Is if you have drinking with negative consequences, it doesn't matter. Dr. Howell always says this. It doesn't matter if you drink every day, or it doesn't matter if you drink once a year. If you have negative consequences, significant negative consequences from that that drinking episode, you have a problem with alcohol. Yep. So true. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Missed workday. So this goes back to the cost. This is so interesting. This comes from just this year from JAMA. Alcohol abusing employees missed about 13 days of work annually, but individuals even with just mild, mild alcohol use disorders missed an average of 18 days. And meanwhile, those with moderate missed nearly 24 days and severe was 32 days of work each year. I mean, that's over a month of work just lost to an alcohol use disorder alone. I mean, thinking about that and that productivity. I mean, that's a huge cost. When you th- It's a huge cost to people personally, too, yeah. personally and to their place of employment, right? Well, I mean, when you think about the prevalence, when we go back to how many people have an alcohol use disorder, that many are missing a month of work just to their 
alcohol use disorder because of missed days. You know, no wonder why we have a workforce problem right now when we're looking at it. Exactly. And like, like Dr. Chen was saying, you know, what kind of a, first of all, how do we identify folks who are struggling and how do we destigmatize it to reduce barriers so that they can forward and get access to help that they need? And how can organizations and corporations become a safer culture in terms of evaluating and treating and providing resources for folks with alcohol problems? Oh, that's a great episode. If you guys, anyone's interested in hasn't listened to it yet, listen to the episode that we just released on substance use disorder in the workplace. So let's talk a little bit about what we can do to reduce the risk of alcohol-related harms. And this comes from the CDC. They published 2020 to 2025 dietary guidelines for Americans that included recommendations for alcohol. Now, this is very interesting because it is changing. This is something that is controversial. Different organizations are now coming out with very strong statements to say that no alcohol alcohol is the right amount of alcohol, including the American Heart Association and the American Cancer Society. But according to the CDC, they recommend that adults of legal age can choose not to drink at all or to drink in moderation by limiting intake to two drinks or less in a day for men or one drink or less in a, or less in a day for women. They don't recommend anyone starts drinking for any reason, especially for health reasons. And there used to be this idea and even perpetuated by us as medical providers that alcohol was good for heart-related health, like reducing cholesterol, and maybe even even good for brain health. But the guideline says that drinking within the recommended limit may increase overall risk of death from various causes. And I'm going to read this verbatim here, such as from several types of cancer and from some forms of cardiovascular disease, and alcohol has been found to increase the risk of cancer. And for some types of cancer, the risk increases even at low levels of alcohol consumption, such as less than one drink in a day. And then, of course, you know, we have rec- we have people who should not drink ever at all, and that includes women who are pregnant or lactating or who may become pregnant, people with a substance use disorder history, active or remote, people who have mental health history that's not well controlled and or alcohol interacts with their medications. And that goes for other pharmacological agents, right, where alcohol is not indicated. And then anyone else who just does not do well on alcohol, it should be no alcohol at all. Yes, that is so true. And globally, I think going along with that, alcohol misuse was the seventh leading risk factor for premature death and disability in 2016. I mean, I think that's why these guidelines are changing. And we can't really say anymore that, oh, I mean, I think just a little bit or that this is good for you. I think why these guidelines are just saying, if you choose to drink, you really need to stay within these these recommended limits. But you can't choose to drink under the guise that this is good for my health any longer. The data just isn't supporting that anymore. And so I think patients need to be very aware of that. And just as physicians, we need to make sure we're giving the most up-to-date and accurate information. I mean, we need to be very careful about the messages that we send. Agreed. Okay. So talking about physicians, us as physicians, and then obviously we're not the only ones providing medical care. There are lots of other kinds of health providers, but it's really interesting to look at the state of affairs of alcohol consumption amongst physicians. Yes, it is. Yeah. Let's take a little look at this. Journal of Addictions issued this wonderful article called The Prevalence of Substance Use Disorders in American Physicians. And I may get the author's name wrong, but it's Oriskovich et al. And they reported that 15.3% of a survey of 7,200 physicians, so that's quite a good number, had alcohol consumption scores that were consistent with alcohol use disorder moderate 
or severe. That's 15% of physicians. That's kind of scary. Well, and compare that with the general population of 12%. As physicians, as a cohort, we are higher than the general population. And I think there's lots of reasons for that. I, I, I'm just I'm just opining here, but we have high stress jobs. We work long hours. I think by very nature, most medical professionals are, you know, wanted, they're perfectionistic, they want to achieve, and then they somehow, we feel like we deserve to take a break. And then also we have a social culture that promotes alcohol, right? We go out to dinners and we're very lucky. We're in we have the advantage of having the means to entertain ourselves. And that's where I think a lot of drinking comes into play for a lot of physicians, not always, but a lot. I don't know. Why do you think that number is higher in physicians than the lay public? No, I think you touched on a lot of it. Many physicians tend to be empathic people. How do you deal with a lot of the stress of this job? Culturally accepted way to cope. And I'm jumping ahead a little bit. There was this study. They noted that the five-year relapse rate for physicians after treatment is really low, like one fifth of the general population. So if you treat a physician with an alcohol use disorder, it works. Treatment really works. And number one, I think you're really motivated, particularly when their license is on the line. I mean, I think that's something, what do you call it? Like self-efficacy to want to get better. Exactly. And also they may have access to a PHP or a provider health program, which is a program typically sponsored by the state that helps providers, actually not only physicians, but all medical providers, anyone who has a medical license, if they have a substance use disorder, they provide evaluations or they guide evaluations and treatment and monitoring and uh, longitudinally over five years. And it's very efficacious to have that kind of longitudinal care in and of itself. But that's good news. That's good news. So we may be a drinking bunch, but we can stop if we want to. That's kind of the bottom line, right? <laughs> yes. Okay. And, and so, if you offer treatment, it will work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And one other thing to remember too, when you are, if you treat fellow medical providers and you're assessing them for substance use, or you don't think to assess them for substance use, especially alcohol, remember that alcohol use manifests at work the last. Okay. So especially in medical professionals, other things will fall apart first. Their health will fall apart. Their marriages will fall apart. Their finances, but they will hold their work life together typically. And that will be the last thing to fall down. And I think that's evidenced by a lot of things in medicine where we'll just keep coming to work if we have dysentery, if we have, you know, a migraine, we, if we're, you know, we just keep working. We're a working group and we have a lot of integrity to our license and the work that we do. And so you have to be quite inquisitive to look for maybe some of the objective signs that people aren't doing well, maybe struggling with depression, anxiety, overwhelm, burnout, or the objective signs of alcohol use. And then also just ask them, how much are you drinking? Do you feel like it's too much for you? Do you know the recommended limits, etc.? And you know, what about drinking in the pandemic? And how has that affected physicians? Well, Physician Lifestyle and Happiness Report said that the pandemic has definitely exacerbated drinking across the board. And now five or more drinks a week is standard for about 30% of older physicians, like the baby boomers, 26% of the Gen X physicians. So I guess those are like the 30-year-olds and the 22% of the millennials. And that's up. That's an increase from a 2020 We're Gen Xers. 
Paula. Do we are we are. <laughs> I think I'm 30 we're, still. We're, we're <laughs> <laughs> I guess I forgot like about our tail, age group. I think we're the we're like the tail end. I think. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I, I clearly don't know. I'm I'm a luddite enough that I don't know what the generations are called. <laughs> Okay, well, then about a quarter of physicians don't drink at all. So according to the 2021 report, some people just don't drink. But overall, physicians who do consume alcohol reported an uptick in their drinking because during the pandemic. Do you do you hear that? Have you heard about that? Or have you seen it? Oh, yes. I, I think it's just physicians are still people. And with this just massive increase in alcohol use throughout the pandemic, I don't think physicians have been immune. And of all of the like different careers that have been impacted, I mean, healthcare has been has taken a huge hit. It's just like a bomb went off in our field. <laughs> so so true. I mean, there there's so many that are just struggling and still and still struggling. That's so true. Let's talk about drinking and the pandemic, just not only physicians, but what do we know about alcohol use since the pandemic started? Well, we know that alcohol use amongst Americans has just gone through the roof, right? We saw the uptake in alcohol sales go up as a steep curve March of 2020. And you, I think you have some data that you were telling me before we started about the increase in, in online sales. But a study from RTI International found that women with children under five seem to be the most vulnerable to excess drinking in the pandemic. That's really alarming. And that's kind of sad. They have seen rates that have increased. Are you ready for it? 323% during the pandemic. I mean, it makes sense. And I think this even it just talks about how during the pandemic, why this was such an issue for women who had young children, because they lost their childcare. They still a lot of them had to work. And some of these, particularly if you think about women physicians, they were going to very and nurses, they were going to hazardous jobs, having to deal with the stress of childcare, and then the stress of that and then worrying about trying to bring this home. Also, these children were not even when you had the vaccine available are were not vaccine eligible until very recently. And so then you have the worry, these kids are getting sick. And what do I do with that? There's just the stress, I think, of everything trying to keep your household together on top of everything else. Oh, you bring up, yeah, you bring up such good points. Yes, yes. And we all saw this. We all witnessed it. Some of us witnessed it firsthand, right? And there's a great article you can look up. It's in the JAMA Network, open in 2020. And the name of the title of the article is Changes in Adult Alcohol Use and Consequences During the COVID-19 Pandemic in the US. There you go. It's very, it's exactly what we're talking about. And the author is Pollard and Tucker at all. And they looked at, they actually did a study, where they did a review and they collected data using the Rand Corporation American Life Panel. They sampled 6,000 participants aged 18 and over, both English and Spanish speaking. And they reviewed before and during COVID pandemic drinking, they reviewed number of days of any alcohol use and heavy drinking. And they defined heavy drinking as five or more drinks for men, four or more drinks for women in a couple of hours. So basically binge drinking and the average number of drinks consumed over the past 30 days. So I love that because they looked at more than just how many drinks do, do you drink a day. They looked at binge episode days of alcohol use and average number of drinks over the past 30 days. As well as that data, they also administered a 
15 item short inventory of problems test, which basically asked about adverse consequences associated with alcohol use in the past three months. For example, I've taken foolish risks when I've been drinking, you know, yes or no. And what they found is they took, they ended up with a sample of 1,540 adults. And what they saw was the, so the frequency of alcohol consumption increased during the pandemic overall for all of the sample by 14% over the baseline and for everybody and for women, 17% over the baseline in 2019. And this is not a, this is not a big time difference. This is only pre-COVID and post-COVID. And they also noticed that alcohol consumed was consumed more. So one day more per month in three quarters of adults and that in women, there was a significant increase in heavy drinking as well as an increase in report of the problematic drinking. So the short inventory of problem scale that we were talking about, women reported a 39% increase in problems, which is indicative of increased alcohol-related problems independent of consumption level for nearly one in 10 women during the pandemic. One in 10 women reported alcohol-related problems during the pandemic. I thought that was an interesting article if anyone's interested in looking it up. That's really interesting. So interesting, alcohol-related deaths increased from 2019 to 2020 from 2.8% to 3%. And some of those studies and this came out just in JAMA of this on March 18th of 2022. This study reported that part of these increase in deaths is attributed to the obviously the increase in drinking to cope with stress, which we've talked about. There was an increase in the amount of liver transplants for alcohol-associated liver disease and emergency department visits for alcohol withdrawal. Obviously, your your risk of death goes up. The National Center for Health Statistics were used to compare the numbers and rates of alcohol-related and all-cause deaths among individuals. So they compared 16 and older and from 2019 to 2020. And so that's where those that data is coming from. Just the, just the trend when they were looking at the numbers from alcohol-related deaths just from 10 years ago, and then we should not be increasing, but we are. Right. That's really sad. Yeah. So I think we're only, it's only the beginning because of it's just, you know, March, we're recording this at the end of March of 2022, but it's only March of 2022. Yes. It's only been two years. And yet we're already seeing this massive increase in alcohol related death and um, increase in alcohol use, which I think we're going to unfortunately see downstream effects for decades to come from the pandemic relating to alcohol use. And it's not only alcohol use, right? It's substance use in general, and also mental health crises. We're seeing, you know, more anxiety, depression, suicide, all of these terrible parameters. So what about what about for women? Let's talk a little bit about alcohol and women, not just because we're women and it's interesting to us, but I think it's an interesting concept to understand, especially as a health provider, if that's who you are, or mental health provider. It's good to know how to educate your patients on the risks associated with alcohol, specifically for women. And uh, US data from 2019 show that women in their teens and in their uh, early 20s are now reporting drinking and drinking to to intoxication at higher rates than their their male peers. And this is some of the first time that we've seen this. So we're now seeing this equalization of the genders, whereas before we always had a male predominant problem with over imbibing and alcohol use disorder, right? Yes. And why this is such a big deal is alcohol has 
more negative consequences for women. And we'll talk a little bit about that physiology. And it's not because it's a sexist thing. A lot of times when we go through the safe amounts for men and women, I get this, I don't know, Polly, you tell me how many times patients kind of push back. Well, why why are you telling me I can't drink as much? I can, you know? And it's like, it's like, this is a physiological difference with your body. And it's one of those things that it just, it just is what it is. And it has really dire consequences. Exactly. And the reason, I mean, there are reasons we may not understand, but women have alcohol related problems sooner and with drinking less with men for lots of reasons. And we call this the telescoping effect when we see that. That's what the effect is called. But the reason why this is, some of the reasons are women typically weigh less than men. So it's kind of a body weight to to, to volume consumed equation. Also, women have more fat percentages than men do. Typically, not always, but alcohol is very water soluble. So it gets distributed amongst water volume in the body. But women have a smaller proportion of water percentage than men. So alcohol is literally more concentrated for women than men. And then the other thing is, you know, we do not have the same amount of alcohol dehydrogenase in our GI system that men do, ounce for ounce of alcohol consumed. So we just do not metabolize alcohol the same way at the same rate. And that puts women at greater risk of, you know, everybody, no matter no matter whether the gender, if you're 26 and older, those people who began drinking before age 15 were much, much, much more likely to have an alcohol use disorder in the past year than those who who waited until after age 21. So we know this in, in addiction world that the earlier you are exposed to substances and alcohol, the mu- more likely you are to develop a substance use disorder later. But the risk for this, the risk for females regarding this phenomenon is much higher than that of men. Five so if you times have, higher. That's, so it's, yeah, that's terrible. Yeah. So if you have a 13 year old female who starts drinking alcohol versus a 13 year old male, neither is ideal. However, the risk for the female is much higher. So let's see what kind of health, just pure physical health related risks exist for women regarding alcohol use. Yeah. So women are more susceptible to alcohol related heart disease than men. And that's even with less alcohol consumption over their lifetime compared to men. A lot of people don't understand that there's a risk, a heart related risk. I don't think there's a really known, you know, people know that cholesterol makes you high risk for heart disease. Having high cholesterol, I should say, or smoking puts you at high risk or eating a lot of, you know, fast food. But you don't often hear people in public talking about limiting their alcohol use because they're trying to reduce their risk of heart disease. In fact, the opposite's been true, right? It's true. Yeah, I don't think they recognize that it by itself, this is a risk factor. And there's also research that suggests alcohol misuse produces brain damage more quickly in men than in women. And this is really interesting. Should we talk about this where it talks about in teenagers, particularly, they did some studies in teen boys who reported binge drinking showed damage on brain activity and performance on memory tests than peers who drink lightly or abstained. Similarly, teenage girls who drink heavily showed a greater reduction in the size of important brain areas involved in memory and decision making than teenage boys who engaged in heavy drinking. That's really alarming. Yeah, and I think, I know, maybe I'm wrong with this, but they're saying that it could be due to estrogen sensitization of the brain, that estrogen sensitization tissue is more susceptible to alcohol-related damage. And that is probably why we see more cognitive damage and brain, you know, memory and decision-making damage in women than we do in men. Yeah, that's so interesting. And then 
women also are more susceptible than men to alcohol-related blackouts. This is the really dangerous part about crimes against women. Yeah, that, so that information all comes from the NIAAA, which is a really excellent resource for anybody who wants really easy-to-digest information on drinking, anything to do with drinking. I would We really recommend that you look up the NIAAA website. That stands for the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, and it's an amazing institute led by George Koob, and they do wonderful research, and they have great pamphlets and brochures, and they have lots of things in different languages. Actually, they have, oh, I can't even tell you how many languages they have their brochures published in. It's in lots, but it's a great resource. Yeah. Uh, what about breast cancer? And actually, cancer in general, but we have some data specifically to breast cancer, shows that women who consume one drink a day have five to nine percent higher chance of developing breast cancer compared to women who don't drink at all. And this risk of breast cancer increases for every additional drink they have per day. This is a significant risk. And I like to talk to my female patients about this during their annual wellness visit. Especially, I think women are really worried about breast cancer, rightly so. So it's very, very common. And most of them are surprised when I tell them one about one drink a day will increase your risk of breast cancer, especially for those women who have risk factors for breast cancer. I have that conversation saying you don't probably don't need to add any more risk factors. And we know that there's lots of other cancers that are attributable to um, alcohol, but specifically for women. All right. Well, we've covered a lot of stuff tonight. Yeah, that is such great information. Conclude by saying like alcohol related disorders can be devastating. I just lost a patient this week to alcoholic, acute alcoholic hepatitis. She was 28 years old. I mean, that's tragic if, if you've ever had a tragic loss, right? However, alcohol use disorder is treatable. It's a treatable condition and it may be relapsing, but it also is remitting. We must offer our alcohol using patients the right counsel and medical advice in terms of the risks of alcohol. And we must screen our patients for alcohol use disorder, risky drinking, high intensity drinking, and provide them with brief intervention. We know this works, referral to treatment or treat them ourselves. Yes. And there's evidence-based treatments involving psychosocial therapies, 12-step or other mutual groups. And of course, medications for alcohol use disorder, MAUD, which include the three FDA approved medications, naltrexone, which comes in a very highly effective injectable long-acting form, disulfiram, which is otherwise known as anabuse or a campersate. And you know, don't forget about those. And we have a whole podcast on those medications at the beginning of season one. Just a reminder that to treat alcohol use disorder and never give up on people with alcohol use disorder. Well, also want to shout out to, there's a medical assistant in my clinic right now who is a huge fan, Marisol. So to give her a shout out. Thanks, Marisol. She <laughs> She's such a, she's a great medical assistant. She's a tribute to the patients that we serve. So don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find us on Twitter at the addiction FI number one. So addiction FI and then the number one, not written out number one. And we're on Instagram as well at the addiction files and love to hear your comments, see your posts, and uh, you're welcome to email us any comments or questions or feedback. Give us a review on the podcast platform you listen to. We're excited to be involved in this podcast now for just over two years and our listenership is growing and we're really grateful to you all for uh, for listening in until next time 
Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you are advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.